This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. Hello, I'm Tom Scrag, and I'm here with Hugo Messias from the Joint Alma Observatory in Hello. Santiago. So, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Hello. Oh, you're most welcome. You're over here for a conference. How was the conference? It was a very impressive, small conference. It's one of those about star formation measurements in the long wavelength part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And it's one of those conferences that you come and some of these people actually said that they were not expecting to learn so much. I was actually coming here already with that perspective to actually learn more and know what's out there now in the field so it was really fulfilling in that sense yeah i learned a lot of course okay and you gave a talk at the conference yeah yeah, yeah. so my talk was about the latest advances on the study of this one galaxy that it's being gravitationally magnified by a foreground galaxy so in this case you have two galaxies aligned in your line of sight where one is much, much further than the one in the middle. So what you'll have is that if this one in the middle is massive enough, it will kind of bend the path of the light coming from the one in the background. And if it's perfect aligned, it will appear as a Einstein ring. In this case, it's actually almost close to a complete Einstein ring. And we knew from the start that was a messy system and it will be fun. Either you want to (laughs) consider that negative or positive way, but it was a challenge. And uh, what we know now is that it's a merging system between one massive galaxy and another one that is a third of its size. So it's what we call a one to three merging system. Okay. Yeah. And that is considered like the boundary of what we call a major merger and a minor merger. A minor merger is like what people colloquially consider to be like a galaxy cannibalism, where you have a big galaxy and you have a satellite. And the satellite will slowly be devoured. Can you say that? Like devoured by the bigger galaxy. And that's a minor, minor merger. It has its implications. A major merger is much, much bigger. In this is like two big galaxies merging together. It's a big mess. And then you try to see what will be the end scenario. And you can say there is two options. Either you have a lot of gas and then the current stellar population will merge into a bland, which we'll later call a bulge, while the gas will settle down into a disk and reform the disk and you will have a disk-like galaxy. But depending on the size of the stellar components, you can have either a lenticular, which is kind of the sombrero galaxy, or you have something more dominated by the disk, but still with a significant bulge component. Like nothing like uh, the Milky Way. Milky Way is very, very dominated by the disk components. The bulge is kind of minor. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you can tell this from the way the galaxies are merging? Yeah, so for instance, I still have to compare with some simulations. It's ongoing work, but it's close to submission. But for instance, we need to just to see if the amount of gas that we know that there is in the system actually allows the galaxy to grow significantly. 
and what is the phases because we know that the smallest galaxy is actually the one where we see most stars being formed of stars being born and we see that there's about 400 solar masses per year and this estimate comes from calibrations that have been studied recalibrated and retested and that was one of the things that we were addressing here in this conference i mean what are the advantages of using these estimates from the infrared, from the millimeter, from the radio, when you compare them, for instance, with optical estimates, for instance? The optical, in one hand, is very much affected by dust around. So dust can be hit by optical and neutral light, mm -hmm. and it will warm up. But it's energy that it's absorbed. So you won't see it in the optical. So you know that stars form in a group and you expect this many numbers of stars. And you know that in principle, if you get that initial distribution of stars, which we call the initial mass function, you expect this amount of UV light, this amount of optical light. But then there's dust that hides it. So if you try to estimate the star formation from the UV, you'll get an estimate that it's lower than what in reality there is. But you know then that this energy is not lost. This energy will then be re-emitted thermally by the dust at infrared to millimeter. So we can kind of recover. So if you combine the two, then you have a better estimate of the subformation. But sometimes you don't have one or the other. So you have yep. to correct for that. So Again, this conference was, can we use these estimates isolatedly without combining to actually have overall estimate of the star formation rate in the universe, for instance? And again, going back to the galaxy that I was studying, we know that there's a considerable amount of gas that can, within the next four mega years, which means the next 40 million years, which in cosmic time is very, very short. If we keep the rate of star formation, can exhaust the gas that it's available to form stars. And okay. I'm just talking about the gas in the molecular phase, which mm -hmm. is H2. But there's also atomic hydrogen from which stars can form, but way less efficiently. So that's kind of what you can understand this as the gas that will be used way in the future, but still allow the galaxy to grow. So, but here's the point. Will that gas have time to settle into a disk or not? And that's the question. So we know that the smaller galaxy will increase the stellar mass of the system by a quarter because it's a one to three merger. But then it will grow a little bit because of the gas that it's currently forming into stars and it will increase another third or something. But there's still atomic gas that will turn into molecular gas, but in that takes time, then there's the dynamical settling of the gas into a disk. But which one is faster? You're hoping to look at that and try and get information on how quickly those things will happen? Or? So there is it's mostly assumptions, because even the turning atomic hydrogen into molecular hydrogen, there's many mechanisms. But because now it's just, we have the assumptions from how much does it take atomic hydrogen to turn into its molecular phase? And 
there's many scenarios that can make that transformation take from millions of years to way more like tens or hundreds of millions of years to have the whole amount of atomic gas turn into molecular gas. But you assume a number, since in these conditions you assume a given number. Now I don't know in, uh, at the top of my head. But then you also can compare to simulations, where simulations is basically you clash two galaxies close in properties to the ones we are observing, and then you wait and see how much does it take for the gas component to settle into a disk. And then you compare the two. How much does it take the atomic to turn into molecular, and how much does the, the disk? Which one is faster is the one that will tell you the answer. But if it's kind Follow of comparable, on. you assume maybe there will be a disk at the end of this merger. Which part of that work do you find most interesting? Is it the modelling of the behaviour of the galaxies mm. or the observations and then the comparison? It's a bit of both. In this case, the simulations that I'm talking about is actually taken from a team. So in the sense that they have their own computers, they have their own simulations, that they have been working a lot on these ones and they know way more than I do. But, and thankfully, they did this, which is they have this website where you can actually extract the different mergers that they simulated. And some of them may happen to be close to what you have okay. observed. Yep. If not, you ask them, this was the case, I send them an email and could you simulate this kind of merger? And they did. I just need to download the results and then I compare it to my galaxy, right? <laughs> This is how it works. And it's in that sense, it's very cool. In the sense that astronomy is a huge, big team. Of course, you will always, in all areas, have, I don't know if I can say that, but jerks. Competitive individuals. Yeah, competitive individuals, <laughs> yeah. But generally, astronomy is a huge, big team. And as long as we respect each other and you keep developing, and that's the cool thing, for instance, Alma. It has its difficulties in managing such a huge team because it's not because it's a huge team. It's because within this team, there's many, many different cultures. We have the European, we have the North American, we have the East Asian. So even within the European, there's many cultures there. Yes. So managing all of this, all of the different approaches that have been characterizing each of these societies for ages scientific-wise, and even socially, it's hard. But mm -hmm. we we are showing that it works. We are showing that Alma has been producing amazing results, has taught us a lot since 2011. And yeah, it, I've seen some yeah. of the images. They're absolutely yeah. stunning. It's a huge project, and it only resulted because people got together. And sometimes you see even countries that are part of this team, sometimes politically, they don't agree. But here, we yep. do, and we show that we can work together. And in the end, culture is just so minor compared to what we can learn. And if you get together what we're doing, it's very cool. So you get a lot of these kind of collaborations. Like, you need something, and you know that there are people that know more than you. And you have to admit, there are people that know way more than I do. <laughs> okay, I did a PhD, I did a postdoc, fine. There's so much to know about the universe that you cannot know everything in detail. And even the things that you learn in the PhD, you get out of your PhD and you realize, damn, 
there's so much to learn yeah, yeah. still. I know nothing. And, and that's, that's, you just have to be humble enough and say, I know nothing. So if there are people that know more than I do, so contact them and say, okay, I need your help for this. Can you do that? And most of the people will probably, yeah, sure. Tell me a little bit more about ALMA. So is it a radio telescope? Is it optical? Is it infrared? So the name ALMA means Atacama Large Millimeter Array. Sometimes you put in between brackets submillimeter array. It's just because the wavelength that it mostly is sensitive to has a wavelength of around one millimeter. Okay. So it can observe, for instance, between about 0.4 millimeters to about three millimeters and potentially up to seven millimeters. Are they big dishes? Yeah. So the next part in the name is array. And array means you have not one single telescope or antenna, but many of them. And the reason why there is many of them is because it's not practical to actually build one single telescope that will cover the same area as this one's individual can be spread over the Shajnantor Plateau. So oh, the, this is high up in the mountains. Yeah. So the first word, Atacama, it's because it's in the Atacama Desert, which is in a, a desert that's actually spread over Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. But the Chilean part is one that they found this plateau, which is a flat region at 5,000 meters. It's uh, around the base camp of the Everest, which is about five, five two hundred. And there is where the antennas are. But it's so huge that you can put these antennas as far apart as 16 kilometers away from each other. What I mean by that is that they can pretend that we are observing with a one single telescope the size of 16 kilometers. The largest movable steering single dish in the world, and there are about two that are the size of 100 meters. And that's basically the technology limit that you can steer a dish. Then there's the Arecibo and the other one in China, which, which is just looking up and it's the secondary that moves. Yes. But you cannot see the whole sky with those because you cannot move them. It's too big, like 500 and the other one, I don't know how much meters it is. The one in China is 500 meters. Yeah. And, but the, the Arecibo is also like almost there. Yes, like they're very, they're very similar. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. China is slightly bigger, and you yeah, no, it's just slightly bigger. That I know, yeah. But, but the, the thing is, meters. you cannot move them. No, you cannot move them. So having this flexibility to actually have movable antennas that can, from time to time, mimic different sizes of telescopes, it's very, very handy for science. Because then you have different details. Either you want to be more sensitive to the large-scale emission of a galaxy, or you want to actually pin down the very minor details in the spiral arms of a neighbor galaxy, for instance. That's the kind of flexibility that you have when you have such a telescope. The technology is called interferometry, which means that you're working with interferences. Each pair of antenna will receive radiation. But if they are pointing to the same place, they will be receiving radiation from the same source. And there is a very powerful computer also at 5,000 meters that actually cross-matches these signals 
and each pair of antennas, and we can have thousands, we actually mathematically translate that into an image. Can I just come back to something you, mm. we were talking about earlier? You said the galaxies that are colliding are being lensed or magnified by a nearby galaxy, or an not, intermediate yeah, galaxy. Intermediate, yeah. Yeah. So what kind of magnification or improvement in the image does that give you? So if it didn't have this galaxy in the way, could we detect the two that are colliding? Depends. So if we integrate long enough, then yeah. Okay. <laughs> but when I talk about magnification, is both spatially and in terms of flux. So when you talk about magnification, it's actual magnification. You have magnifying glasses that help you see details in a better way. You just have to adjust the distance of that magnifying glass to actually have a proper image. Well, the distance of the lens, so the intermediate galaxy, we cannot control. When we are trying to understand the system, and when I mean the system is both the intermediate and the background, we assume some properties of the intermediate galaxy, and then we reconstruct what we think is reality of the background system. As soon as we have that, then we know the intrinsic properties of the background galaxy. And in terms of flux, or in terms of how much radiation we're receiving per area, which means how much, how many photons are actually entering the dishes, in this case, will depend on the properties of the intermediate galaxy. What I mean is that sometimes it's the intermediate galaxy is brightening the background galaxy by a factor of only two, but sometimes it's by 30. Yep. So right there, when you mean 30, it will mean that in order for you to detect at the same kind of signal-to-noise ratio, with the same kind of quality, you will need to square the time of integration or telescope time, so it will be 900. So you'll need 900 times more of telescope time to actually have the same quality in terms of how much flux do you have compared to what's the noise. But even then, you won't have the same quality of the data because there's also a spatial magnification. You see more details. And that kind of details, for us, if you don't have anything in between, is limited by the distance between antennas. And that one is fixed. Right. That's our limit. But then it comes gravitational lensing that gives us a boost. And then we can see even more details than current state-of-the-art technology allows us to. Right, okay. So those are the two things that are cool about gravitational lensing, but it has its problems, which I said before, we have to assume something. If to reconstruct the shape, because it's not in focus yeah. for us. How long have you been studying this subject, working in this particular area? So since my PhD. So I started my PhD in 2007, and since then I've been mostly working in studying the coevolution of galaxies and what we call active galactic nuclei, okay. which means that there is in the center of galaxies a supermassive black hole accreting material, but while doing that, it radiates extra or induces that the surrounding material is being expelled to the surrounding medium. 
And depending on the way it does, it can actually prevent the gas to turn into stars. You're basically saying that you're quenching the star formation in galaxies. So that it's called feedback. It needs feedback because gas is feeding the monster, but then the monster feeds some energy back into the medium. So that's why feedback. So there's many, many evidences that these mechanisms actually is telling us how a galaxy evolves in time, depending on the properties of the galaxy itself. So that's why we say it coevolution of galaxies and AGN, so active right. galactic nuclei. Yeah, so one interacts with yeah. the other and they, they both But it's a subject that actually is still not clear. Right. So okay. maybe this kind of quenching of the sufferation can happen, but not in the significant way that it's only the AGN or the supermassive black hole the cause of it. So sometimes you see some correlations between the two, but they might be a result of one single reason. That's basically it. I also try to address this subject, but it's not an easy one. Just a, a couple of things then. Have you ever been up to Atacama? Have you been to the, visited yeah. the telescope? Yeah. So I'm a Alma Fellow, which means that I'm in Santiago in Chile. And every now and then I have to go to the observatory to execute the observations. What I mean by this is that there is every year people around the world submit projects and they say, I have this topic that I want to address. And in order for me to do that, I need Alma to observe this and this and this and this galaxies or stars or protoplanetary disks or whatever. And by this amount of time or to this amount of detail. And then every year people get together to actually evaluate this huge amount of proposals. This year was around 1,600, last year the same. So there are many proposals to be evaluated. And then the ones that are accepted are organized by what kind of array is needed for those proposals. Again, I'll recall you that the antennas in ALMA can be put at different distances from each other. Are they on tracks or is it mobile antennas? Or? So there are two huge trucks that actually move them to different pads. And in each pad, there's a connection that linked them to the supercomputer. Oh, wow. To what okay. we call the correlator. So yeah. physically, you pick these antennas up physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit like the um, rocket launches at uh, Kennedy, yeah, for example. Yeah. It comes yeah. out the building and then yeah. on the back of a big and, truck. And, and it's a very sensitive uh, operation because you need the antennas to always be on in the sense that because you have inside instrumentation that needs to be kept cold and for right. that you need energy and whatnot so yeah so they're always powered up yeah, even they have moved. to be always powered up for many issues right. yeah do you need special altitude training to go to the observatory uh, there is so we operate the telescope at 3000 because at 5000 you already lack enough oxygen that Sometimes you don't think stress. So we operate the telescope at 3,000 meters. At that place, you just need to have a certificate that you're healthy to be there. If you want to go to 5,000 meters, then you have to watch a video, check if you have enough oxygen levels in your blood, that kind of things. 
That's oh, that's okay. a normal thing. Yeah. That's it's just with some simple things that you do and it doesn't hurt and you go if you pass this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then normally people that normally don't go there, they can only be at the site about two hours. And then they have to come back. Altitude sickness would yeah. be a yeah. starts yeah. to be a real problem. Yeah. What are you planning to do next, say, over the next year? Is it continuing the same topic, same set of observations? So we normally have different projects. So I started in Extra Galactic, but since three years ago, I've been collaborating with a team that actually does cosmology kind of science, which means that there are, in this specific case, it's in physics, there are values or standards that we think they are constants with time and if they aren't then things get complicated but you assume that they are for instance the mass ratio between the electron and the proton that's one and then that one you can actually test with ALMA observations by observing specific transitions of molecules in this case are rotational ones that the molecule rotates, but it's at specific, let's call it speeds. <laughs> yep. And with that, you can actually get uh, some estimate of how much did it vary since gig years ago. Yeah, but looking at the same transition at slightly different frequencies, so looking back in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you can, you so can have using the redshift. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And that was one. Also tried to get into also planetary atmospheres. It didn't go well, but I learned a lot. <laughs> okay. I learned a lot. So is exoplanets or no, solar system planets? I mean, eventually that will be the goal, but at the time was smaller than that. It's science. I mean, you keep failing, keep failing, and you keep pursuing what you think it's correct and what moves you, what actually makes you go to work. Because if you talk with many of the people that work in science, they loved it. You have to love it. <laughs> it's not like other works. You're always fighting against the budget that it's getting short and that kind of things. And that. so you have to love what you do here in, while you're working in science. Science in general, I'm not just talking in astronomy. And that works what makes you keep going with a lot of fails. And there's a lot, I mean, there are some people that are brighter and manage to have more success. And you just have to admit it. And if you really love, you keep fighting for it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Hugo, thanks for uh, spending the time with us today. Uh, Very interesting talk. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. And it was a very nice experience.